0: Politics, 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 politics. Hello and welcome, everybody. Uh, This is a little bit of extra content for you. Normally, we don't have episodes come out on Tuesday, but here is uh, something to listen to. So uh, Tom Merritt, who is oftentimes on our show in alternate duties as either a guest host or a tech expert or our UK correspondent, despite the fact that he's in L.A., Uh, In his day job, he hosts the Daily Tech News Show, which for my money is probably the most indispensable place where you can keep up with all of uh, tech news in a way that doesn't buy into hype or hyperbole. So Section 230, something that has come under a lot of conversation over the past few weeks, and will continue to going forward is a hot topic. And Tom just put out for DTNS listeners a roundtable that he did on the subject with a few other very learned folks. He offered it to us. I gladly took it. And now you will hear it. So please enjoy the work of Tom Merritt on this roundtable discussion of Section 230. This is a special
1: Daily Tech News Show Roundtable. Today we'll discuss Section 230 of U.S. Code Title 47, a.k.a. Safe Harbor, a.k.a. Political Weapon. It's a section that has recurred as a talking point in the regulation of Internet companies, particularly social media companies like Facebook and Twitter. And we want to know a little more about what it is and what it isn't. And to help us understand it, we have two excellent guests. Joining me today, Shoshana Weissman, Senior Manager of Digital Media and a Policy Fellow at at the R Street Institute. Shoshana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also joining us, Mike Masnick, founder and CEO of the Copia Institute and editor of the Tech Dirt blog. Mike, great to have you here. Yeah,
2: thanks. Thanks for inviting me. This will be fun.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We should say up front, uh, of course, our discussion here is not a substitute for nor does it constitute legal advice. Uh, The goal of this discussion is just to explore some of the legal issues surrounding CDA 230. uh, And... I'd like to start just by reading the central text of Section 230. It's not the entirety of it, and there are even some important implications of the part I'm not going to read, but this is the... the central graph. Uh, It's the paragraph titled Treatment of Publisher or Speaker. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Uh, There's also a section right after that on civil liability that offers further protections for taking certain moderation actions. But essentially, it's saying if I post something on your computer service, you are not treated as the publisher or speaker of what I posted. All right. So I want to get each of your opinions on what you think Section 230 is designed to do. Shoshana, let's start with you.
3: Sure. So um, the way I like to put it, especially because I'm often talking to people who are coming to this for the first time, it's just that each person is liable for his own stuff. That's all it comes down to. That if I say something, I'm liable for it. It doesn't matter where I say it. If um, it's in the comments section of the New York Times, if it's on Twitter, if it's on Parler, when that's back up, you know, wherever it is, I'm the speaker. And if they moderate stuff, if they try to clean up their platform in whatever way they see fit, um, then they're still not liable for it. And they're not liable for taking my speech down, um, it just, it, it neatens up the liability and it takes away huge regulatory and litigation costs that would otherwise be associated with it. Um, that would stop competition. Um, some people worry about competition, but the best way to get rid of competition is by, uh, harming two thirty.
1: Yeah. So if I, if I've got you right, it's sort of the idea of like, if I decide to take down a post that doesn't suddenly make me responsible for all the posts. Exactly. Mike, does that jive with what you believe Section 230 is designed to do?
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly right. And it's a perfect description. I mean, you know, another way of, of thinking about it, I guess it's just, you know, telling the courts where the actual liability should lie. Um, you know, and and when 230 first came about, honestly, I my my gut reaction was that we didn't need it because it seemed so obvious that mm. the person who's actually doing the speaking uh, should should be the one <laughs> responsible for it. Uh, but I've learned certainly over time that that a lot of people seem to have trouble with that, and some of it is just the the nature of the legal system that people like to go after the the deep pocketed company or you know deep deep-pocketed player in, in any kind of dispute. But the the basics of 230 are exactly as Shoshana described. It's it's just saying the person who speaks or the person who actually violates the law, assuming there's some sort of law violation going on, they're the one who is responsible for it. And the tool that they use to, to post or host that speech uh, is not the one who is liable, uh, even if they are you know, uh, deciding to moderate their, their space.
1: Yeah, it seems like
2: one of the effects of 230,
1: going go to what you said about was it even necessary, was to just reduce the number of court cases needed to draw the line for the internet, to say we're, we're going to draw the line here.
2: Yeah, I I think that's exactly, you know, because 230 was passed in response to two different cases that began to test that, you know, one of which was decided mostly correctly um, with a few oddities and and one of which was decided very, very weirdly in that, you know, that case being the Stratton-Oakmont versus Prodigy, uh, Stratton-Oakmont. the the now famous company that was portrayed in the Wolf of Wall Street uh, for, you know, basically a whole bunch of fraudulent activity. You know, somebody had said on a Prodigy message board, you know, accused that company of being fraudulent. Uh, And because Prodigy advertised itself as a family-friendly space in which they moderated content, uh, you know, the Stratton Oakmont argued before a judge that, you know, since they had done some moderation and had left up these claims of fraud, that meant that Prodigy was liable for them, and this judge in New York uh, agreed with them, uh, and and that created all sorts of big questions. You know, in part because you know the the natural incentive, if that is true, is that companies have. You know, what some people refer to as a moderator's dilemma, which is either that they do no moderation at all because the second you touch it, then you're suddenly liable for everything that you leave up. And in that case, you're, you're, platform fills up with you know, you know, spam, abuse, harassment, hatred, all this kind of stuff that, that might drive away the, the actual people you're trying to attract. Or you, you go in the other direction and you moderate so heavily that you have to sort of pre-approve everything and you lose all the sort of dynamism of open conversation on, on your website
1: yeah i i I look at the there I don't know if the right way to put it is a copyright exemption, but but copyright intellectual property is called out uh, in section two thirty as yeah. you know something you're you're not allowed to violate. And you see in a different situation, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act being used as a threat, as a way to keep speech. Down, uh, because you're saying, ah, I think you're you're violating my copyright here. And Section 230 prevents that from happening. In other cases, it seems like.
2: Does that sound right to you guys? Yeah, I I, I think um, that's exactly right. And in fact, it's a really good comparison. It's one that I wish more people would make uh, because we do have these two different regimes, one for copyright and one for non-copyright stuff. And the copyright one is uh, because 230 exempts copyright and then we sort of backfilled that in with the DMCA section 512, which has this sort of notice and takedown provision, which works, even though people think they're kind of similar, it works very differently than 230. 230 just is an immunity, says you are not, Liable, 512 says we have this whole thing. You know, if you're a website that has registered with the copyright office, which is a pain and they keep changing the system, which is a disaster, uh, You know, and you follow certain rules, including if you receive a valid notice, you then take down that content uh, that removes your liability. And that's very different than 230. And so what we see is that the DMCA notice and takedown provision is abused widely. And there have been lots of reports and studies on this and how many, you know, fraudulent or or misleading or just, you know, ridiculous claims that are made uh, under the DMCA because it puts tremendous pressure for companies to take down that content. You know, Otherwise, they might be liable in court. And so the incentive structure there is like, of course, just pull it down so we don't have to face this issue in court. And so, you know, a change to, to CDA two uh, 230 in that direction likely is going to lead to the same situation where a lot of sites just start pulling down lots of content just to avoid having to deal with it in court. Shoshana, what do you think
1: some of the major misconceptions about Section 230 are? <coughs>
3: Oh, it's so hard because there's so many. Um, <laughs> this is much what much? I <laughs> spend my day doing. <laughs> um, so I think I'd probably start with that people think somehow it stops free speech. All it is is a liability thing. You might not like the way people are moderating, but that's a First Amendment issue. That's not a 230 issue. Um, 230 just says they're not liable for stuff that isn't their own. Um, so that that's a really big misconception. Another thing, um, like Mike was saying about the moderator's dilemma, um, both the left and right have this on and, and pretty much all sides except for the people who kind of (laughs) understand 230 think that if you get rid of it just somehow miraculously the internet is going to (laughs) happen in the way they want it to happen Mm. the things they don't like won't be there or everything will be there but there won't be bad stuff um so on the right they think it'll just allow all speech and you have a lot of people say well we should just have the first amendment standard um and that's the moderator's dilemma side of allow everything for the most part um but what if there's illegal content oh well you can take that down but can you because it's hard to tell if things liable um you know, something that might just seem mean in one context might end up being liable in another, or even um, uh, child exploitative content. Sometimes it's hard to tell um, which is which, let alone like all kinds of li- illegal content. What's a real threat? Some guy trying to keep his forum neat isn't going to be the best positioned. Even a lawyer might not know if he doesn't know the full facts, and you can't go and investigate every single post to figure it out, um, let alone like legal content like spam or harassment or were just annoying posts. Um, you know, I spend quite a bit of time blocking people, and that's with lots and lots of moderation. That wouldn't get any better. Um, and the left thinks, oh, well, this will just get rid of content we don't like. Um, but again, that's not how it would work. It might go to fully open or super closed and allow so little there. Um, and when you have that liability, that just takes away from a lot of stuff that the left um, and I think the right would be into, like the Me Too stuff. That wouldn't have been able to happen. Uh, Without two thirty, and it definitely wouldn't have been um, able to really uh, pop up on social media. It would have been pressed down by other things, um, or it would just wouldn't have been allowed up. Um, one example I really like to use too is I have a ton of autoimmune diseases. My body's a wreck. Mm. It's totally fine, <laughs> but I've learned um, a lot of treatments, a lot of uh, leads for doctors through through um, online forums. I Google my symptoms, and then they're like, "Hey, check out this kind of doctor because you might have this," and I get a diagnosis. But could you? You imagine the risk and the liability of uh, posting medical advice um, on an online forum. Um, while people with autoimmune diseases like me know that um, there's a long history of doctors not listening to us, not taking us seriously. And while that's changing, part of why I think it's changed is the ability of people to talk about this stuff freely and openly online. So I think that people just think that um, 230 allows the people they don't like to, do, to say things that they don't like or to not say things. Um, that they would, that they uh, wish could happen um, but that's just not how it works. Um, one other really big misconception I want to address is that I think some politicians mean this earnestly but I also think a lot of politicians and even media realize that uh, social media is competition and they don't want competition. They don't want people to be able to find their news on social media and they don't want um, criticism of their policies online. Um, so when politicians see, hey, I can just go on TV and get my voice heard that way um, and if we kind of crack down on social media it doesn't matter too much to me um, that's you know th- that's kind of the way I think some of them are thinking about it and the last thing I'll say too is that um, people think somehow if you get rid of 230 it's it, it's just sticking it to Facebook and Twitter but every website is covered by 230 they might not use their 230 protections like if they don't have an online forum or something like that but um, but every site's covered by it so you're just stopping competition because the big guys can handle liability far better than like your mom's blog or even places like all trails um, they they moderate so it's only hiking content if I post politics there they're gonna take it down and then they become liable for every crazy guy's post um, so I think those are three big ones that I often see where they don't understand how uh, 230 really works
2: yeah and, trail- and uh- oh go ahead Mike. I was going to say, I want to add one more to that because that, that was great. And that was like basically the exact same list that I was going to give. But I want to add one more that I think is important and often gets lost in the debate, which is that not only does Section 230 not just protect the big companies and protects all the small websites, it also protects the users. You know, it, it says there right in there, you know, no no uh, provider or user of these services. And that means that you are protected, for example, when you forward an email. So if you forward an email that, that has libelous content, you're not liable for, or forwarding it. If you retweet someone, if you, you know, share, reshare something on Facebook, all of those things, you're protected under 230. And in fact, there have been a few cases of people forwarding emails and getting sued for it and being protected by 230. Because, you know, if you're just forwarding an email, you haven't taken the time necessarily to go through and, and examine, like, is this, you know, is is this information libelous in, in some way? So it's, it's not just that it protects the big companies. I think that's a completely, you know, false belief out there. It also protects, you know, you and me as individuals.
1: Yeah, that's a really good one. I, I hadn't thought of uh, the, the retweet uh, forwarding email mm-hmm. uh, exemption uh, where it says you are just a distributor there, you know, like a bookstore. You're you're not the publisher uh, when you forward an email. And, I, and that's that's the thing I see people getting mixed up a lot is when Facebook uh, is you know taking someone down they're they're exercising editorial control and they're a publisher that isn't responsible for their own content uh, and correct me if I'm wrong but if Facebook publishes something if Facebook exercises you know their own voice they are also still responsible for what they do uh, if it's not an exemption to Facebook's own actions its exemption from Facebook allowing
2: other people to post on their platform right right yes absolutely and in fact that's that's an important distinction too you know there is this this incorrect belief that 230 is this like complete you know liability shield that Facebook is never you know cannot be sued under any condition for anything and that's that's just outright false you know their own content that they create, um, they they are still liable for that. And and there's a, a famous case involving that that was you know in, in the Ninth Circuit, which is the the Roommates decision, in which. Um, Th- there was an issue of you know roommates being a, a site to find roommates, uh, mm. pretty obviously, uh, and they had a pull down menu that um, let you sort by race, um, and that violates fair housing rules in in theory. And the question was, was that roommates that was responsible for that, or was that the you know person who was um, you you know uh, putting up a, an apartment to to sublet or whatever? Um, and what the court found was that. 230 did not protect roommates for that because they created the pull-down menu. It was right. their creation. It was their content. And therefore, that was not protected by 230. And so I think that's an important distinction. It makes me wonder if
1: if Facebook creates, which they are, a news section where they choose the stories that go in, are would they be treated as a publisher in that case <laughs> because they're making the selections?
2: Uh, okay, so... Uh, I am not a lawyer. Yeah, and we, yeah, <laughs> so we yeah, gave that blanket disclaimer at lawyer. the top for that very purpose. <laughs> and so there are, there would be a lot of. Uh, questions there that would would, would raise some issues. Um, and so I would hesitate to say definitively there, they would be protected under the First Amendment. And I think that's the most important point there, um, because that's just a, a, a standard editorial choice in the same way that, that how Google decides what you know uh, what sites to show you when you do a search that is protected under the first amendment and just like when the new york times decides which stories they're going to put on the front page that's a first amendment choice you cannot sue them over that under the first amendment so i think for the most part that would just be protected under the first amendment whether or not it's also protected by 230 i don't think so though there I I hesitate to say that because there are some arguments that if the way they were choosing was considered a form of moderation, there might be some elements that are protected by 230, but we're getting really deep in the weeds. (laughs) Shoshana, anything to add to to that question?
3: No, I think that's a great uh, point. And I also wanted to add that I, too, am not a lawyer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Going back to your your point about the trails message board, I, I sometimes think about Section 230 as protecting off-topic. Nobody likes, you know, when somebody wanders into a forum or a message board and goes off-topic, Section 230 protects you from saying like, hey, we're not talking about politics here. This is a hiking trail, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. And I know a lot of people think that it's all about politics and allowing like liberals or conservatives to do what they want. But that's such a small part of it. Um, Part of the reason I like to focus on these other like non-political forums is just because they're really important. I mean, whether it's Wikipedia, where everyone goes in and edits um, and I used Wikipedia quite a bit in high school and now quite a bit as an adult um, and all trails, which is literally how I don't get lost in the woods as easily, at least. Um, But you have people going in and editing the trails, showing. Which route to take. A lot of times there's comments saying, hey, there's bears active lately. Like you (laughs) might want to be aware of that. Um, Even down to websites like Stack Overflow, where experts who know code share code. And I use that in my digital media work constantly. Um, But without that, you'd have tons of irrelevant content. Um, You know, if they would be liable for all the posts, more more than likely. Um, And of course, they're not going to want just irrelevant stuff or scams or other stuff. Um, But without 230, they're just probably not going to want to touch it or they're gonna allow so little in that you know it's they become less good resources um, and also with code it, this is something I'm less well versed in but I know that there's some thought going into like well does someone own code can you use code can you share code in certain cases um, and there's no way for like stack Overflow to know which code sharing is illegal versus not um, so I would suspect that they just want wouldn't want to moderate anything um, and then they would just not you know it, it wouldn't become as useful as tool. Um, And even for like Parler, when they were starting out, and even unfortunately, well into their development, they weren't moderating so much. um, But they did choose to moderate certain things. Um, And even if it wasn't a great model, they had the right to moderate in the way they saw fit, and it didn't work out. Um, But moderation uh, decisions are hard, and they change over time. Um, It's why you see um, in Senate and House hearings, you'll have a Democrat saying, how dare you not have taken down that post sooner? And then um, you'll have the Republican and say, why did you take that post down at all? And it, you know, just the the difficulty of it and the breadth of it is something that I think a lot of people don't understand.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, one other like example of like a small website that I just saw recently that I was thinking about in this context was uh, uh, a forum site for magicians of all things. And and they have uh, a rule that you can't expose how, how effects are done. And if they had to moderate under the first amendment, that's not a violation of the First Amendment to expose how a magic trick is done. And yet, you know, they have this rule and they actively pull down anything that exposes how, how different effects are done. And you're like, yeah, they should be able to do that. And that, you know, and they're protected under 230 for that. But, you know, if, if 230 were removed, I don't know how that that would operate, you know? And so there's all these sort of weird, you know, edge cases. Everyone's so focused on the politics. Um, but, you know, in most cases, you know, 230 and what it allows has nothing to do with politics.
1: I was talking to somebody one day who who was uh, saying that you know all these platforms uh, you know control the speech and they and they need uh, to allow all the speech you know that's legal on there like Parler does uh, and I said I think your problem is is an antitrust problem not a Section two thirty <laughs> problem because what you're saying is they are effectively the only option and if and I used the example of should a Christian bookstore be forced to carry Communist books uh, or, or atheist books. It may be even mm-hmm. a better example. Uh, I, and, and I don't think anybody would assume that the law should force them to, to carry any books. And that—that's kind of, in my mind, what Section 230 is doing: is saying you get to decide uh, whose speech you're allowing on your platform. And if that platform is so dominant that other platforms can't exist, that isn't Section 230. That's antitrust.
2: Yeah, and, and there's there's a few different things uh, uh, around that, and you're exactly right to some extent. You know, uh, you know, one thing I'd like to say is that you know the a, a lot of people point to. I know you just read the the sort of section C one of two thirty, mm-hmm. but a lot of people point to the the findings part, the section A of two thirty, which talks about you know wanting to create a, a diverse. Uh, discussion online as, as proof of, of this idea that you have to leave up everything. But what the authors themselves uh, Chris Cox and Ron Wyden the sort of bipartisan at the time members of congress who wrote 230 um, have said is that no that's not at all what they meant because you know what they wanted was every site to moderate in its own way and you would get that diversity from different sites not one giant you know site that everybody has to that has to allow everything uh, that you would you would have all these different sites that could take their own approach and they even point out that like you know the uh, uh, Republican National Committee website shouldn't have to host uh, content from people screaming for Democratic policies, and the Democratic National Committee website shouldn't have to, uh, you know, post content from from you know Trump Republicans demanding you know totally different viewpoints. Um, and so, you know, the the question, the the larger question, then is is a, you know as you said, sort of a, this question of competition: is there enough competition? Do you have a platform? And and you know, there are all different ways of of thinking about that. But like, the truth is right now, you know, if you don't have Parler or you don't have Facebook, there are other ways that you can get your voice heard. And there are other, you know, uh, just all sorts of other ways to talk. If if there is an antitrust question, then that's, that is a totally different issue. But I do think that the 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 big mix-up here is that 230 itself has created that s- situation where you have a dominant platform. And in fact, we did a study that came out last year, or not, well, now it's 2021, so two years ago, that um, that actually showed that 230 encouraged more competition. That that laws like 230 enable there to be more of these different platforms rather than fewer, because if you don't have that. The cost of moderating and the cost of running a platform becomes so high that you you consolidate and you only have a few of these providers out there. So, if we're talking about it from an antitrust perspective, 230 actually enables there to be more uh, competition rather than less.
1: Yeah, it reduces the, the cost, right? Is that the argument? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, there's a few things. It not only reduces the cost, but it also increases investment. I, and, mm-hmm. and we looked at, the, the study that we did looked at investment um, between a variety of different Regime, sort of, you know, intermediary liability, which is this the phrase that covers all this stuff. The different regimes that are used in the U.S. We look between C.P.A. 230 and D.M.C.A. Like I said before, with copyright, we look between U.S. and E.U. We looked at different countries where the law changed and what happened before and what happened after, and and you could see that a change in these kinds of laws that puts more liability on the platforms reduces investment reduces the number of platforms that are available and so it decreases competition without without sort of 230 like protections
1: we've talked al- already about what would happen if 230 were just repealed and it wasn't there anymore can Can you think of any other examples that we haven't already touched on about that either one of you
2: uh, of what it would look like if it was repealed Yeah, if
1: we just took it out and it just wasn't there
2: uh, I mean, who knows? The real issue in in part is that then we'd have completely blank slate in terms of what the courts would rule. So what would, you would have a mess in that there would be a whole bunch of lawsuits probably very quickly. And it would take, you know, three to five years probably before courts started ruling and it would probably be a mixed bag and eventually the Supreme court. So there would be this massive amount of uncertainty. Um, and that's, dangerous for a whole variety of reasons, you know, businesses operate on uncertainty. When there's more uncertainty, you know, they're going to be a lot more risk averse. Um, and so, you know, I think because we, we have, you know, 25 years in which there's been no case law on this because 230 has, has, you know, made these companies immune, you'd be opening up this this just complete wild west of of legal madness uh, that I think would be very dangerous in, in its own right.
3: I totally agree. And especially in the regulatory certainty point, that's something that that's really close to my heart because my, my main area of policy is often occupational licensing reform and regulation that um, that deals with certainty and uh, barriers to entry. Um, we put up wild barriers to entry, you know, like um, hair braiders need licenses and stuff. So there's fewer hair braiders in states where you have to be licensed to be a hair braider. Um, and and um, the lack of certainty, too, just businesses don't want to get involved if they don't know what's going to happen, even during the pandemic pandemic. The executive orders to waive certain regulations were really helpful, but they're not going to create a good long-term impact because people are not going to want to deal with that regulatory uncertainty. And it's something you see along all sectors. Um, And because 230 is so good about providing that certainty and about uh, providing that ability for innovation, it's something that I've come to care about. Um, Usually I'm yelling at laws, but this is one I really, really (laughs) like. Um, And I want that's part of why I'm so passionate about it, my digital media side, and then my knowledge of how regulations work and change the way business works. Um, it, it just brings a lot of passion here, um, especially just it, it allows small competitors in other areas that are super overregulated regulated um, or that have lots of liability. It, it's only bigger people that can compete. Um, the surest way to make this into an antitrust issue is by <laughs> um, getting rid of 230 and uh, and letting only the big guys have a say.
2: And yeah. it's it's worth noting that that Facebook, you know, the the largest company in this space that we're talking about is the one that is most eager to to reform 230 because they know, you know, they know that they can handle it and that it will harm their competitors. And so for them, you know, this idea of, of repealing or they, you know they don't want to repeal it totally, but they do want to. They've said they want to reform it. Um, you know they know that it will it will help them much more than any competitor.
1: So if you want to help incumbent large social networks and increase pay for lawyers, <laughs> repeal two hundred and thirty. Am I reading that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. That's
2: that's 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 the slogan.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, before we finish up here, I'm curious from each of you if you think Congress should in any way amend 230 or replace it or leave it alone. Shoshana, uh, I'd like to start with you.
3: No, it's my perfect angel. Um, And again, it's very (laughs) rare for me to say that about laws, but I really like this one. Um, Mike might have ideas on how to change it or make it better, but, um, but I just really like this one.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, you know, if if I were to change it, I would do three things, uh, and and no one is actually thinking of doing any of these three things, so <laughs> there's no likelihood of this happening. Um, the first is that I would fix the one typo. Uh, this this is a focus of Jeff Kossoff, who wrote the whole, the book <laughs> on section 230. There is a typo; they refer to the wrong section at one point. Nobody notices it except Jeff, and now me because he tells me about and it. Now, yeah, uh, everybody. Lets you know. Great. <laughs> so, so I would fix the typo. Um, the second thing is I would actually I would reverse the the one change that has been made to Section Two Thirty, which is FOSTA, which was passed a few years ago, and it took away the liability um, on a, a broad set of uh, uh, the liability protections on a broad set of content, um, which is described as having to do with sex trafficking, um, but in reality has just been a huge pain for sex workers, um, and has made, you know, has put them at risk, um, has probably cost many lives. Uh, and there's no evidence that has actually done anything to help with actual sex trafficking. And in fact, law enforcement, uh, who you know, ridiculous, somewhat ridiculously originally supported the change to 230 have now been complaining that they have less visibility into actual sex trafficking and therefore they cannot combat sex trafficking. So I would roll that back, um, and then the third change, uh, and again, this is never going to happen, is you know I was comparing the DMCA 512 situation and the uh, to CDA 230, and I think the CDA 230 approach is much better. I would extend, I would take out the exemption on on intellectual property, and I would extend 230 like protections to copyright as well.
1: All right. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you know a little more about Section 230 now. Mike and Shoshana, thank you so much uh, for helping us understand this a little more.
2: Uh, If folks want to find more of what you're doing, uh, Mike, where should they go? Uh, I am on TechDirt and uh, ever present on Twitter at M. And Shoshana, what about you?
3: Um, rstreet.org. And I'm on uh, Twitter too much, far too much, (laughs) at Senator Shoshana.
1: Senator Shoshana, great. Uh, Thank you again both uh, for joining us. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you'd like to get more Daily Tech News Show, go to dailytechnewsshow.com. You can even support it directly without ads, dailytechnewsshow.com slash Patreon. Talk to you soon.